Welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. My name is Zach Adams, and I pastor a church located just outside of Athens, Georgia, and the name of the church is Calvary 316. We're located off of Highway 316. If you're a local, check us out. Our service is Sunday at 1030. You can learn more about the church by visiting the website, calvary316.com. Regardless of where you are or happen to be listening, I hope you do stay with me over the next hour as we seek to deconstruct the negative perception that the world has of Christians by boldly and brashly discussing relevant topics in an honest and ingenuine way. And today, I want to specifically talk about the church and the strategies that the church has pertaining to reaching the next generation. And to do this, I want to set the stage by looking at an important passage of Scripture, I think a really controversial passage of Scripture, a story recorded in the first several verses of Acts chapter 5. Let, let me just read the first verse to kind of set the stage. Luke, who is the author of Acts, writes that a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. This story begins by introducing us to a couple, Ananias, which is the Hebrew word for God is gracious, and his wife Sapphira, which is Aramaic for beautiful. And that's quite a match, right? Grace and beauty. Luke tells us that they sold a possession. Now, we'll come to find that the possession was specifically land. And in context, it seemed that they sold this parcel of land with the intent of giving the full proceeds to the church. Now, that word proceeds in the Greek, it means the full sale price. Not a portion, but all. Now, no one asked them to do this. Selling the land, giving the money, this was a choice that they freely made. Now, Luke continues by letting us know that after they sold this possession, Ananias and Sapphira, they decide to only give part of the proceeds to the church, not the, not the full sale price as they originally intended. Now, that would appear to be the first of two serious missteps. The, the phrase kept back. It's not an innocent phrase. It, it, again, in the Greek, it means to misappropriate or literally to embezzle. Th that word is translated in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, as literally pilfering. The picture that Luke is painting for us is one where this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they had given a possession to God, and then they sold it, determining to give the entirety of the proceeds to the church. However, once the possession likely sold for more than they thought or assumed, this couple ends up reneging and keeping back for themselves things that they had already allocated to God. Now, the text doesn't specifically say this, but it is implied from the context, especially from the remainder of the story, that Ananias, under the directive of Sapphira, that they were in co co they were cohorts, they end up bringing a certain part of the proceeds to the apostles, again, and this is the second mistake, under a false pretense that they were giving the whole. Ananias comes first. We're told in verse 3 that, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, now Luke kind of transition, transitions us here, but Peter, and we can see a manifestation of the Holy Spirit and, and working through the Apostle Peter. Like, there was no way for Peter to have known what Ananias had done. This was a scheme that was hatched in secret with his wife, Sapphira. And yet Peter, in this moment, is given a gift of knowledge, a supernatural insight into this situation. While there, there's no sins ever committed in, in, in secret, sins are sometimes committed in private. Peter does something interesting here. He issues here a public rebuke of Ananias before the church because of the public nature of what was happening. He, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Now, Peter is clear that the offense was not that Ananias kept back part of the land. And keep that in mind. The offense was that he presented his gift under a false pretense. The severity of the crime becomes evident and the reality that Peter actually accuses him of lying to the Holy Spirit. 
The original language indicates that Ananias was presenting a deliberate falsehood through his actions. In a sense, Ananias' crime here was one of hypocrisy. His actions revealed that he was masquerading as someone that he wasn't. He, he was pretending, faking, engaging in a deliberate decession. And what's worse, this hypocritical deed had been done because he had allowed Satan to fill his heart. Peter's, Peter's words. The passion behind this act of generosity was no longer Christ. It, it was no longer intending to care for Christ's church. Instead, Ananias' desire here was to bring attention and glory to himself, which is why Peter can, continues, after it was sold, Ananias, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Though Satan had been the motivation behind his actions, Peter is not letting Ananias off the hook, is he? It's as though Peter's like, dude, this was in your control. Why did you conceive this? Why did you do this deliberately? You know, it's true that hypocrisy in the life of an individual might be a sin witnessed by men, but this passage makes it clear at its core, hypocrisy is actually a greater offense to God. Well, verse 5 tells us that Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, no doubt it would. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Again, Luke tells us that upon hearing the words of Peter, Ananias, he croaks, he falls down, he breathes his last. The word for, for fall down here, that he fell down, it means to descend from an erect to prostrate position. Like It spoke of suddenly falling down dead. And, and to be clear, Ananias is dead. He breathed his last. Luke, who was a physician, is saying that the breath of life had departed from his body. Now, contrary to popular understandings of this passage, please understand, in no way, shape, or form does the text even make the illusion that Peter pronounced a death sentence on Ananias, that Peter struck him down. Like, all Peter does here in the passage is confront Ananias on his sin. As a matter of fact, I'm fairly certain that Peter was just as surprised as everybody else in attendance that day when Ananias ends up falling down dead. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 7 says that about three hours later, Sapphira comes in, not knowing what had happened to Ananias. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she, and she replied, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Holy Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came and found her dead, carried her out, and buried her with her husband. This is one killer church service. Now, now we already know, because of the way the passage opens, that Sapphira was in cahoots with her husband. I'm sure that Peter here is also equally aware, which is why... Peter does something I think is very gracious. He gives Sapphira an opportunity to come clean. And, and yet, sadly, Sapphira not only maintains the same lie she had, concoct, she had concocted with, with her husband, but unlike Ananias, like, she brazenly denies any, any type of impropriety. Now, because of her role in the scheme, Sapphira would justly experience the same judgment as Ananias. Peter says, how is this that you've agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, those who have buried your husband, they're here to carry you out. She falls down, she breathes her last. Now this is where, by the way, this entire story gets very complicated for me. Like if, if just left to the description of Ananias' death, one might reasonably conclude that he had died of a natural cause. That he was so shocked by Peter's rebuke that he had a heart attack and died. However, the death of Sapphira clearly presents a picture of divine judgment. If Peter had been surprised by the death of Ananias, he's so certain of Sapphira's impending death, he predicts what's about to happen before it occurred. As such, the reality that God judged Ananias and Sapphira by striking them both dead is undeniable. Now, 
the majority of Bible teachers present this story as a warning against hypocrisy within the church. Like, I've even heard commentators point to this story as being a perfect illustration for the way that God deals with people within the church much differently than the way he does those outside the church. It's kind of the, the basic with revelation comes greater responsibility theory. I've also heard Bible teachers explain the extreme way in which God deals with this couple as being consistent with the reality that when God begins a new work, and the church was very young here, that he always goes to extremes to establish a clear precedent. These expositors will point out that when the children of Israel entered the land of promise after the years of wilderness wandering, after they experienced their first victory by conquering Jericho, they suffered a humiliating defeat why? In Ai, they, they suffered a defeat because of the sin of Achan. And then the death of the man and his whole family was used by God to establish a precedent for the people, one of obedience and purity. Now, I, I think that there's some merit, some truth in both of these explanations. But in light of the assumed belief that Ananias and Sapphira were Christians, I have to be honest that, that neither conclusion as to why God would judge believers in such a harsh way makes any sense to me. As a matter of fact, to a degree, it's kind of offensive. Now, I agree hypocrisy within the church cannot be tolerated because of the destructive effects it has both on the individual and the church at large. And, and I also agree full-heartedly that God views the issues of obedience and purity among his people with extreme seriousness. However, the notion that God would kill two believers bought with the blood of Christ simply to establish a precedent for a new work that doesn't sit well with the rest of Scripture or what I know of God. If Ananias and Sapphira were believers, as most suppose, then weren't they living under grace and not the law? And if that was the case, hadn't their sin, past, present, and future, already experienced the judgment of God when his wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ? Now, again, don't get me wrong. I do believe that even the sins of believers bring with them very natural consequences. But this was God's direct judgment. If they were believers, Ananias and Sapphira made a tragic mistake. But, but honestly, think about it. Was the crime really worth the punishment? And if it was, why do we see hypocrisy in the church not experience the same type of judgments today? You see, I'm of the opinion that this passage becomes unnecessarily complicated because of an assumption. We assume that Ananias and Sapphira were believers. Now, if you look back to the text here in Acts 5, you'll notice that never once does the passage indicate that was the case. As a matter of fact, in diagnosing the core problem, Peter observes the contrary. He says, what could never have been said of one filled with the Holy Spirit? He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart. Like, understand, Satan's initial strategy when it came to opposing the work God was doing through the church was through intimidation in order to squelch this incredible moving of God. In the first part of Acts 4, the religious establishment severely threatens Peter and John to no longer speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But not only do they refuse to cave to those demands, but in response to a fresh filling of the Spirit in Acts 4, verse 31, we're told they spoke the Word of God with even more boldness. Like, it was clear to the enemy the church was not going to be silenced through intimidation. This is why, as you enter chapter 5 of the book of Acts, Luke presents this story of Ananias and Sapphira to illustrate that Satan had shifted to a new strategy in his attempts to derail the work Jesus was accomplishing through his church, not one of intimidation, but now infiltration. Now, we're running against a hard break. Again, we're going to tie this into the church, church strategy, and how we try to reach the lost world around us. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back here with the Outlaw Radio Show. Hi, my name is David Guzik, and I'm a friend of Zach and the entire team at Outlaw Radio. One of the things I like most about Outlaw Radio is Zach's desire to challenge Christians to think critically, ask relevant questions, and then pursue answers on their own. The sad reality is too many Christians don't know what they believe, yet alone why they believe what they do. 
This is why, in addition to Outlaw Radio tackling the tough topics you might not hear at church on Sundays, their desire is to equip, inspire, and challenge you to dig into God's Word and wrestle with these complex topics on your own. To help you in this process, Zach wanted me to let you all know of two free resources essential for any serious Bible student. Aside from my full Bible commentary available at EnduringWord.com, the resources you can access at BlueLetterBible.org will truly transform the way you study the Bible. Aside from their treasure trove of free commentaries, BlueLetterBible.org also has an incredible word search function, making it easy to dive into the original languages behind a biblical text. So if you want to dig deeper into your study of Scripture, check out EnduringWord.com as well as BlueLetterBible.org. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. We are looking at an interesting story recorded in Acts chapter 5, one of Ananias and Sapphira. They sell some land, false pretenses, they lie to the Holy Spirit, Satan filled their heart, they come before Peter, they end up both being struck down dead. They experience the judgment of God. And Luke, the author of Acts, uh, includes this story for us to let us know that the satanic strategy against the church had shifted. Initially, it was intimidation, trying to silence the church. When that didn't work, now it was infiltration. Again, I don't believe Ananias and Sapphira were Christians. And with the idea of infiltration in mind, to me, this provides a much better explanation as to why God would deal so swiftly, deliberately, and publicly with Ananias and Sapphira. You see, with such a lens, God deliberately intervened here. Dramatically. Why? Because he wanted to preserve the integrity of his work from the corrosive infiltration of the enemy. You see, as demonstrated by their own actions, it was clear that Ananias and Sapphira were not interested in giving to care for the needs of the church. They wanted to give so that they could receive a greater place of influence. Very similar to a gentleman that had given a portion in the chapter before, a man by the name of of Barnabas. Now, I believe this was not here a story of God correcting the behavior of believers. And I need to be clear, nor do I think that it's God setting a precedent for how he would handle hypocrisy or sin in the camp. Rather, it's my conviction that this story is included in the book of Acts to illustrate how God would protect the church, his church, from non-believers seeking to infiltrate the ranks and gain influence. And notice in Acts 5, the results of this divine action of God. We're told, one, that great fear came upon all the church, and two, none of the rest, or those outside of the church, would dare join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Now, one could imagine that this type of holy intervention would have had a negative effect on church growth, right? People are afraid in the church and dare not join them outside of the church, but there was an esteem. You would think that would have people dying, falling dead in your church would have a negative effect. But we're told that instead of a dip in church attendance, Acts 5 verse 14, this is what we're told happens as a result. Believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Increasingly is, the, is a Greek adverb that indicates that following, following this event, believers were being added to the Lord in a greater number and degree than at any time previously. And we already had two accounts of 3,000, 5,000. It's an amazing moment. Now, what I find interesting about this story, and why I want us to talk about this today, is that it really does defy the conventional wisdom of church growth gurus who believe the only way a church can be effective in the 21st century is by creating a Sunday worship environment whereby unbelievers feel welcomed and accepted. And to accomplish this, many seeker-friendly or attractional churches, they dumb down intentionally the presentation of the gospel. They'll they'll avoid topics of moral absolutes. They'll incorporate slick marketing, multimedia techniques. They do all of this with the desire, intentionally, verbally, of fostering a positive, non-threatening spiritual experience for anyone who might be in in attendance, Christian or unbeliever. 
Now, what makes that strategy so ironic is that the church in Acts took the opposite approach. Beyond that, as illustrated by this very story, the church was actually a very dangerous place for an unbeliever. While it's true that there were indeed unbelievers who stayed away out of fear, Luke tells us as a direct response to this reverential atmosphere, multitudes were drawn to the church. Incredible growth. People were turning from sin, converting, following Jesus. In fact, too many for Luke to even count. And why was this church so successful? We should ask ourselves that question. And I believe that the key to its success was that A, it was clearly distinct from the culture around it, and B, it demonstrated an authentic power. Clearly, God was working when you have people falling over dead. You see, this church stood in a stark contrast to the world because it offered people a genuine experience with God through Jesus that neither religion nor a Hellenistic culture could provide. Now, there are some who claim that we live in a different time. Okay, Zach, what happens in the book of Acts worked then, but it doesn't work now. And yet what's interesting to me is that the conditions we find in the first century Jerusalem context are very similar, actually, to what we find in our own 21st century culture. What was the environment? Empty religion and pagan hedonism. And those two things had left people hungry. For what? Well, for something real, something authentic, something genuine as well as spiritual. Though the seeker-friendly model of church has proven to be incredibly successful in attracting Generation X. Generation X are those that are born after the post-World War II baby boom, up to 1980. While the seeker-friendly church has been successful in reaching Gen X, I'm convinced that this model of 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 church ministry is going to die out. And here's why. I think it's ineffective in reaching millennials or Generation Z, those born after 1980. Now, I'm not going out on a limb when I say that Gen X or the MTV generation is without a doubt the most superficial, image-driven, egocentric, commercialized, materialistic generation in American history. It's a truth. But this is why I make the point. It makes them perfect for the big church with little substance model. And yet, though much research still needs to be done, it doesn't take a PhD in sociology to recognize that millennials are radically different than Generation X or their predecessors. A few years ago, Pew Research Research Center issued the first report of its kind in which they analyzed millennials and discovered a singular characteristic of this new generation was that they had become increasingly, quote, detached from institutions. That was the most general characteristic. According to their report, 50% of millennials, today aged 38 and younger, described themselves as being politically independent, with 29% claiming zero religious affiliation. Pew notes, Quote, these numbers are at or near highest levels of political and religious disaffiliation recorded for any generation. It's amazing. Pew also observes that millennials have been keeping their distance from marriage, another core institution of society. Just 26% of adult millennials are married. That's down 10% from Gen X, down 22% from baby boomers, down 39% from the silent generation. With the medium age at first marriage now being the highest in modern American history, the average millennial will wait till 29 if you're a male or 27 if you're a female to get married. Now, in response to the question, generally speaking, would you say that most people can be trusted or that you can't be too careful in dealing with people? Just 19% of millennials say that most people can be trusted. Again, that's down 12% from Gen X and 21% from baby boomers. Again, this Pew study observes that millennials, 
have also emerged into adulthood with the lowest levels of social trust than any generation before them. You know, with that in mind, should we be surprised the Barna Group, an an organization that's compiled data concerning millennials and the church for the last 20 years, should we be surprised that Barna Group claims 52% of millennials do not attend church, with 59% of those who grew up in church walking away at some point during the first decade of adulthood? Like, when millennials who have remained faithful attenders were asked to identify what helped them stay around church, helped their faith grow, what blows my mind is that church itself, or, or for that matter, church attendance, doesn't even make the top 10 list. Millennials will identify things like prayer, family, friends, the Bible, having children, and their relationship with Jesus just generally as the most common drivers of their spiritual growth. David Kinneman, who authors a book titled Unchurched, this is a comment that he made. He wrote, Millennials are rethinking most of the institutions that arbitrate life from marriage and media to government and church. They have grown up in a culture and among peers who are often neutral or resistant to the gospel. Millennials often describe church as not relevant or say that attending worship services feel like a boring duty. One of the specific criticisms millennials frequently make about Christianity is that it does not offer deep, thoughtful, or challenging answers to life in a complex culture. I want to repeat that. The specific criticism that millennials frequently make about Christianity is that it does not offer deep, thoughtful, or challenging answers to life in a complex culture. And friend, we're going to build on that thought. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with the Outlaw Radio Show. Be sure to stay with us for the second half of this fascinating edition of the Outlaw Radio Show uh, with Zach Adams. Hey, I want to encourage you to visit outlawradio.org. You'll find a lot of information at this website. In the top right corner, there's an option for you to subscribe to the podcast. This means that you'll receive the Outlaw Radio uh, show right to your phone, right to your computer, right to your, your iPad, your smart device. And uh, you'll be able to hear the show anytime. You can connect. Uh, you can see all the different stations that the Outlaw Radio Show is on. Uh, you can even learn more about Calvary 316, the church that Pastor Zach um, is pastoring. So please check out outlawradio.org and come back for the second half of the Outlaw Radio Show. What are the parallels between what Ananias and Sapphira did in the book of Acts? and modern church methodology? Here's Zach with part two of the Outlaw Radio Show. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. My name is Zach Adams. One of the most important aspects of our show is our desire to connect with you, the listening audience. If you have any questions, want to challenge something uh, I say on this show, if you'd like to submit even topics for us to address, literally nothing's off limits. There's a few ways, easy ways, that you can connect with me. First, our email is info at outlawradio.org. Info at outlawradio.org. Our Facebook page, if you go facebook.com slash theradiooutlaw, like us, follow us, join our community. That's a, another easy way to reach us. If you're into Twitter, our handle is at radio underscore outlaw. We'd love to hear from you, submit questions. Uh, just an important aspect of what we're wanting to do. Listener feedback's always an important thing. Now, we ended our previous block with a quote from David Kinneman, who authors a really interesting book titled Unchurched. He, he wraps up a thought by saying that the specific criticism that millennials frequently make about Christianity, and we're talking about how to reach a new generation, is that Christianity does not offer deep, thoughtful, or challenging answers to life in a complex culture. I am, full disclosure, a millennial. I'm 35. And I genuinely believe that the reason 
this younger generation is leaving the church in droves. And it is. Look at almost every metric. Young people are leaving the church. But, but I think the, the explanation is very simple, actually. You see, church, along with all other institutions, really, is no longer perceived as being genuine or authentic. And you know what's worse about that criticism? <laughs> They're 100% correct. Let, let me give you an example to my point. Why are millennials abandoning the traditional view of marriage for a more libertine approach? Let me give you the answer. More often than not, a millennial's experience with the institution of marriage has been negative. I mean, think about it. With over 50% of, of marriages ending in divorce, should we be surprised that millennials don't believe in the sanctity of the institution argument as being a valid reason to deprive a gay couple and love the right to marry? Like personally, I'm convinced that seeker-friendly churches that appealed successfully to Generation X are going to be resisted by millennials for the same basic reason. Because churches that attempt to appeal to everyone end up standing for nothing and in the end present what is perceived to be an empty, meaningless, superficial, one-inch-deep spiritual experience. They don't like it. It doesn't float. It doesn't answer their deeper inner longings. Recent data actually shows that the attractional church model, m m many of the, the biggest attractional churches in America haven't grown numerically in the last five years. Successful with Generation X, but not so much with millennials. You know, on the flip side, this is also why millennials abandon traditional churches. It's the same reason. Because these steeples in the community have been viewed, have, have become viewed as overly political and legalistic with blatant hypocrisy, mired in scandal. Millennials leave traditional churches because they don't find them trustworthy as well. I, I had lunch with a pastor friend who described the period that we're in as, as a post-denominational church culture, and that's true. Should the Christian community, with all of this in mind, be shocked that only 16% of millennials say that they have a good impression of Christians? Let me repeat that. Only 16% of millennials say they have a good impression of Christians, with the most common perception of Christians being that they're judgmental. 87% of millennials hold that position. What's more, should we be, should we be surprised that churches are failing to reach the next generation? How do you reach a generation that assumes you're judgmental? And hypocritical. And, and yet, I say all of this to say that, that there is hope. There's, a, there's, a, there's an answer to this riddle. We can reach this culture. And, and let me give you the explanation. While millennials might be skeptical of institutions... There is a mountain of evidence to show that millennials are drawn to authenticity. Skeptical of institutions, but drawn to authenticity. In a recent article written by Kerry Noonwolf titled Five Reasons Charismatic Churches Are Growing and Attractional Churches Are Past Peak, he writes this, quote, If you've been around church, the church world for the last few decades, it's easy to think that you need polish to pull off effective ministry. Another $50,000 for lights or sound, and you'll be good. But if you're sitting there thinking that you need a better soundboard, some new LEDs, and a much better band to reach people, think again. Passion is free, and passion beats polish. He continues writing, the effective churches I've visited 
by no means had the best lights, stage, or production. Not nearly the level that you see at some churches. But what did they all have in common? And he answers this question. Passion. When it comes to reaching the next generation, passion beats polish. And then he adds kind of a caveat. He says, and don't fake passion. People can smell fake from a mile away. In an age where nothing seems real anymore, people are looking for the authentic. You know, after being raised in a society that that oozes commercialism, millennials have have reacted with a craving for things that, that are genuine and authentic. Like they, they almost have just a distaste for things that appear contrived or disingenuous. And there are examples of this absolutely everywhere. Again, let me, let me give you some examples to my point. This is not condoning anything. It's just purely examples. Follow me here. Generation X drove Budweiser and Miller to being American staples. Millennials have actually rejected that. Like millennials are the driving force behind this microbrew and craft beer movement. Like, like un- unlike Xers who made Jack and Jim a college necessity, millennials are more drawn to, to pre-prohibition whiskey, making that vogue, American cocktails. It's true. Just look at how marketing has changed. Unlike the Xers who gave up on good music for a digital imitation, what what are millennials doing? Millennials are raiding their grandparents' basements in search of real analog record players. So many of today's popular, top popular bands release their albums on actual records. Again, unlike Generation X that sold out quality, for a quick processed Happy Meal. Millennials are the driving force behind this commercial shift back to natural, homegrown, farm-to-table type of produce. When comparing the 20-somethings who remained active in church beyond high school with those who dropped out, the Barna Group uncovered a significant difference between the two they discovered that those who stayed plugged into church were twice as likely to have a close personal friendship with an adult inside the church. Now, we're running against a hard break. We're going to tie all this up when we come back. If you've only been able to listen to a portion of this episode, you lack the context of the first or the second block, Check out our website, outlawradio.org, and find our podcast. It's on iTunes, Google Play. You can listen to this episode in its entirety, as well as everything we've ever recorded or produced here with the Outlaw Radio Show. Don't go anywhere. We're going to tie it all back when we come back here with the Outlaw Radio Show. One of the missions of Outlaw Radio is to bring your attention to ministry resources that will benefit your personal study of the Bible and spiritual growth. With this in mind, we want you to check out Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Not only is their vision to help the thinker believe, but they exist to help the believer think. To accomplish both of these aims, their website, rzim.org, is filled with tons of free resources aimed at not only answering your own difficult questions, but with the intention of providing the necessary tools to defend your faith in an ever-growing hostile world. Once again, you can learn more about Ravi Zacharias International Ministries by visiting rzim.org. That's rzim.org. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. I mentioned that the Barna Group had uncovered a significant difference between those who remained connected to church after high school and those who didn't. And that was the fact that those who stayed connected were twice as likely to have a, like a personal relationship with an adult inside the church. Again, David Kinneman, who wrote on church, this is an observation he made. He says, among those who remain active, this much is clear. The most positive church experiences among millennials are relational. This stands true from the inverse as well. Seven out of 10 millennials who dropped out of church did not have a close friendship with an adult 
and nearly nine out of ten never had a mentor at church. Now, this is his conclusion, and I will disagree respectfully with his conclusion, but he concludes that the implication is that huge proportions of church-going teenagers do not feel relationally accepted in church. This kind of information should be a wake-up call to ministry leaders as well as to church adults of the necessity of becoming friends with the next generation of believers. I think he misses it, and here's why. In the 10 years that I spent as a youth pastor before Calvary 316, I saw firsthand the incredible impact adult mentors had on millennials. So in that aspect, I, I agree. However, it was not because of a relational connection that millennials stayed around church. It wasn't because they felt relationally accepted. It was the fact that the relational connections modeled for a millennial an authentic, genuine form of Christianity, one that could be embraced. It was respected, real, often even raw. Now, let me bring this home. Like, we want the church. We should want the church. Your church should desire to be as close to Jesus' model as it can possibly be. And yet, we should realize that the best way to reach the next generation, and honestly, every generation, is by personally demonstrating and verbally encouraging people to have an, a genuine, authentic Christian experience modeled by Jesus. Like I, I really do believe that people no longer have an appetite for the gospel dumbed down into self-help nuggets or surface-level Bible lessons. That trend is dying. You see, in, in a crazy, complex, information-driven world that presents more problems than answers, what do people crave? What do they come to your church really wanting? They crave deep, thoughtful, challenging answers and how to find meaning and purpose to life in a complex culture. I really do believe that millennials want the word of God taught. That they crave logically based explanations and not fast-paced overviews. Millennials will challenge everything. So before uh, you throw out a fact, pastor, validate the truth, because the millennial will. They will sit in the pew and Google everything you say. They will fact check it. But they want truth in a world filled with lies. Additionally, millennials don't want, I'm convinced, a worship experience relegated into nothing more than mindless repetitions or energetic pop-driven sing-alongs. In a superficial and emotionally draining world, millennials want something that's deep and passionate, a way to express themselves genuinely to God. Millennials want to praise God with both the mind and the heart, which is why, by the way, we've seen a renaissance of what? Classic old hymns. I'm convinced millennials will embrace a church life that they find to be logically consistent and clearly in sync with what the Bible has to say. But I'm also keenly aware that because millennials have a built-in distrust of people, they will quickly and passionately resist submitting to church life that's solely based on a, the opinions of man. God's word is crucial because it's real. You know, if you show a millennial what God has to say, about various issues. Not my opinion, this is what God says. And you explain why God took that approach. Most millennials will embrace it. That being said, if a millennial perceives that a person in authority is enforcing a position beyond what God has to say, they will reject it, reject you, and leave the church because their distrust of people and institutions was just reinforced. There's no question, friend, that we live in a culture that is dominated, just like the first century, by empty religion and pagan hedonism, identical to what we find in, in Acts chapter 5. But today, as then, we need to remember that people are hungry for something real and authentic and genuine. That's what the church needs to be to this culture going to hell. I believe this is the type of church God wants for such a time as this. 
you know, at Calvary 316, there's not a lot of pop and circumstance to what we do. Our worship is crafted to engage as much of your mind as it is your heart. And sometimes that means that the worship songs are wordy. Our teaching is hearty, Bible-centric, heavy. At Calvary 316, we, we partake communion every Sunday. We have a different view. We try to have a biblical perspective on all that we do. Like, I hope that you want to be a community of believers, be part of a community of believers, whose focus is on developing Christians. Like, that's what the church is called to be, a place that Christians can gather, a place where Christians who love Jesus and who love people, who live lives consistent with the truth of God's word can, can have koinonia and fellowship. Like the church, its power is in its authenticity. It should have a flavor of heaven, not an appeal to the world. We often judge churches by, by how progressive we are. We should be heavenly. You know, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. God acted in a very brutal way. But he did so decisively for one reason. To protect the integrity of his church. Ananias and Sapphira were church attenders pretending to be Christ followers. They were faking a generosity to gain influence, to gain status. And God took that so seriously that he struck them both dead because to allow such a dynamic to root itself in the church would have robbed that church of not just its heavenly fragrance and standing in the world, but its power to change its community. Again, I want Calvary 316 to be a place, and I want your church to be a place where God moves in such a real way that great fear came upon everyone that was there and anyone that was a faker stayed away because they held that church in high esteem. Again, this is not the, 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 the common church growth strategy. And I know this counters that per pervasive wisdom, the ministry approach, the attractional church, the seeker-friendly model, but I really do believe that if your church is such a place that believers will be increasingly added to the Lord. Again, a pure church making a powerful impact outside the doors. Well, you've been listening to the Outlaw Radio Show. Thank you for indulging me, something on my heart, something I've been chewing on and, and discussing even, even at, our, at Calvary 316. If you like what you heard, I want to encourage you to do two things. First, contact your local Christian radio station. Like we're at whatever dial you're listening to this, call them, find out. It takes a little work, I get it. Find an email, but just say thanks that they exist and that they have this type of programming in your community. Second thing I want you to do is to visit the website, our website, which is outlawradio.org. And, and from the site, you can easily access our podcast that's available on iTunes, Google Play. You can listen to get to this episode in its entirety, all previous episodes. I encourage you to, to share this in your social media circles. You can copy the link, paste it. Check us out on Twitter at radio underscore outlaw. Info at outlawradio.org is our email address and facebook.com slash the radio outlaw. It's how you can connect with us there as well. Again, I'm Zach Adams, and I hope you join me again this time next week for the Outlaw Radio Show.
You've been listening to the one and only Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. As mentioned, if you like what you heard, be sure to connect with us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter or check out our website by visiting outlawradio.org. To listen again to today's show, access our daily two-minute broadcast or full-length episodes, check out the Outlaw Radio podcast, available on both iTunes and Google Play. Once again, don't forget, we want to hear from you. If you have questions, want to challenge something that was said, or would like to submit topics you'd like to hear Zach discuss on air, you can either email us at info at outlawradio.org or you can leave a voicemail at 678-883-3316. Finally, programs like Outlaw Radio are wonderful tools God can use to change lives. But as with any ministry, there are expenses involved. First, if you're not tithing to your local church, you need to do so. And yet, if God has laid it upon your heart to extend your generosity above and beyond your tithe, we'd ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Outlaw Radio. Every donation ensures this show remains on your local station. To learn how you can become a financial partner, please visit outlawradio.org. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you join us again next week for the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. Outlaw Radio is a ministry of Calvary 316 in partnership with his productions.